This is The Guardian. Today, he's been preparing his entire life, but is Charles III ready to become king? It's been happening before our eyes these past few days. We, therefore, the Lord's spiritual and temporal of this realm, publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Charles III. The transformation of Prince Charles, a man we've known for seven decades, into something greater than himself. I am deeply aware of this great inheritance and of the duties and heavy responsibilities of sovereignty, which have now passed to me. King Charles III, a symbol of a whole nation, of lots of nations, as far away as Jamaica and Canada and Papua New Guinea. Whether he can succeed in becoming that icon won't come down to the centuries-old rituals we've been witnessing over the past few days, but to the man at the centre of them. My life will of course change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. This new king's character and how he navigates coming to power in perhaps the most challenging time since the Second World War, with multiple crises in the UK, the possibility in the coming years of the United Kingdom splitting apart of countries formerly colonised by Britain breaking their ties to the monarchy, and the scandal and discontent within his own family. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, can King Charles reinvent the monarchy? And can he reinvent himself? Rob Booth, you're a senior reporter with The Guardian, and there are so many differences between Queen Elizabeth's secession to the throne and that which King Charles is currently navigating. But as someone who's followed him for so many years, who's broken significant stories about him, what's the difference that you think tells us the most about the kind of king that Charles is going to be? Well, I think the answer to that begins with the fact that he's been the heir to the throne for 64 years. That means that he's not only been thinking about what he would do when he was king, but he's also had to fashion a completely different life. I mean, at 73, most people would be retired. He's about to get the biggest job he's ever had. In taking up these responsibilities, I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set. There's another big difference too. In taking a job at this age, especially a role um, such as sovereign, where you're expected to be a kind of figurehead for a whole nation, that's quite difficult because his character is sort of fully formed already. We know him 
very, very well as Prince Charles. The Queen, she became Queen when she was 25. I have in sincerity pledged myself to your service as so many of you are pledged to mine. Throughout all my life and with all my heart, I shall strive to be worthy of your trust. When she talked about that, she talked about it being a very sudden taking on of that responsibility. And you can see from that that, you know, she would then grow into it. I mean, this has been the opposite of a sudden taking on. It's an incredibly long process that Prince Charles has gone into. And you have to think, you know, it's going to be much harder for him to entwine his identity with being king, given that he's already spent so long being the Prince of Wales. Let's try to understand how his life, these past few decades, might give us a clue as to the kind of king he's going to be now. Let's start with his character. What do we know of Charles the Man? One of the things that struck me is that from quite a young age, he has been thinking about the sense of duty and how he should shape his own life to respond to that. What should he do? How should he be a royal? And that kind of constant self-questioning has been a theme throughout his life. I mean, even back in 1978, he was thinking about how he should go about his duties. In a letter that he wrote to one of his private secretaries, he was saying, I want to consider ways in which I can escape from the ceaseless round of official engagements and meet people in less artificial circumstances. I want to look at the possibility of spending, say, three days in one factory to find out what happens, three days perhaps in a trawler instead of one rapid visit, three or four days on a farm. So you can hear him back in 1978 wrestling with this sense of purpose. How do I use the position I've got? And how can I do things differently? That vein of wanting to chart a course and struggling with charting a course is something that has become a strong part of his character, I think. And again, he's a ruminator, isn't he? He's a thinker. He likes to dig into subjects. He likes to talk to experts about them at great length. I mean, I was speaking to one of his former aides a while ago who was saying if someone sends him a paper on the agriculture in the midwest of the united states uh, he will read it and make a note on it he's trying to get to grips with things all of the time and he's not a simple person so i think that's one key part of his character that has been demonstrated to us throughout his life so far that habit of rumination has extended to a set of very intense slightly eclectic interests over the years Tell me about those, Charles's passions. He has a lot of passions about different subjects, and he has ranged from uh, a focus on agriculture and organic agriculture. We've all been embroiled in the experiment of intensive agriculture. It shows that we have been paying twice, not only to subsidise intensive farming through taxes, but again to restore partially the damage which that sort of farming creates. He thinks a lot about religion and different faiths, and he has a very kind of deep foundation in his own spiritual thinking that a lot of people aren't particularly aware of. He's extremely passionate about modern architecture and his belief in classical architecture as being a kind of more uh, harmonious approach to the urban environment. I didn't particularly want to see this country, which I mind about and love greatly, and nor do a lot of other people disappear under a welter of ugliness. 
You know, he weighed in in the 1980s uh, into various public debates about architecture and he, he caused the cancellation of a, of a proposal to build an extension to the National Gallery by calling it a monstrous carbuncle. But what is proposed seems to me like a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much loved and elegant friend. And later he actually built a uh, neo-Georgian village in Wiltshire, a poundbury that he had constructed and that has been a reasonably thriving community over the last 20 or 30 years. But then, of course, you know, he has these other sort of famous kind of obsessions like his interest in herbal medicine, alternative medicine, his concerns about the Human Rights Act and the rights of individuals that he's talked about in the past. The one big one, though, um, that really matters to him most is climate change and the environment. We have to reduce emissions urgently and take action to tackle the carbon already in the atmosphere, including from coal-fired power stations. He tried to sum up a lot of his thinking in a book that he wrote and was published in 2010 called Harmony. I mean, the opening sentence of that book is something that is remarkably strident. This is a call to revolution. The earth is under threat. It cannot cope with all that we demand of it. It is losing its balance, and we humans are causing this to happen. Revolution is a strong word, and I use it deliberately. The many environmental and social problems... And so there you have him grasping the idea of being a revolutionary. Which for... Someone in 2010 who must have known, of course, that he was on the cusp of becoming the the sovereign of the United Kingdom. It's quite extraordinary. You know, there's a sense of playfulness in it. Quite the opposite of a a revolutionary. You know, he knows uh, by saying that he's calling for revolution, there's an irony there. Rob, how has the public seen this this slightly eccentric character that you're sketching out for us? What's his relationship been like with the public? The things that have defined his relationship with the public have been his relationships with women. The marriage problems of Charles and Diana have cast a shadow over the royal family. Now the Queen has decided to bring the whole issue to a head by advising them to divorce. And clearly his marriage and divorce from Princess Diana was something that took his public reputation to its lowest ebb. And then, of course, there was the tragedy of her death and the royal family's response to that, which clouded many people's uh, views of the royal family. I think it must be very, very cold-hearted not to have a flag up. I think it's a disgrace on the whole royal family. I really can't understand that thing. And I think it's a big disgrace for, for the royal family not to, not to do that. To even be here, you have hounded us to death. Is what I want to say. You've lost a lovely person for nothing. You're horrible. But since then, as he has formed a relationship with uh, Camilla, the public opinion of him has warmed up. 
he has shown himself to be a loving father, a loving grandfather. And, you know, the polling will show that uh, while he still hasn't been the most popular of the royals, you know, Prince William is well up there on, on that front, his ratings have improved quite considerably. So I think he comes into this new role in good health, if you like, in terms of his public popularity. And that's even before you take into the account that simply by becoming sovereign and by taking the role that his much-loved mother held, there will be a a considerable boost in uh, popularity for him. Okay, but the controversies haven't just been about his love life. We've also seen him get into some trouble because of his propensity to speak his mind and pursue some of those passions that you told us about in a way that's occasionally seen as meddling in politics. Tell me a bit about some of those controversies. Yeah, that's the uh, the great question of meddling or mobilising. The press have called his interventions on different political issues meddling. And he said, well, look, actually, it's not meddling, it's mobilising. It's me speaking out on issues that matter in the world and that I feel I have a duty to alert people on. The, the truth is that as heir to the throne, as Prince of Wales, he had a long-standing practice of writing letters, handwritten letters, the so-called Black Spider memos to ministers, raising all sorts of different issues uh, with them in the privacy of uh, written correspondence, which has not been uh, always made public. Prince Charles certainly illustrating him being tapped into the uh, information that is coming out of government, things that are upcoming, and also expressing to a degree a view, not necessarily hugely controversial or necessarily hugely groundbreaking, but expressing a view nonetheless. In one letter, which was in 2005, he urged that there should be a badger cull to prevent the spread of bovine tuberculosis. He was lobbying for his preferred person to be appointed to crack down on the mistreatment of farmers by supermarkets. This is all in the same letter. He wanted uh, his own aide to brief Downing Street on the design of new hospitals, a sort of architectural question. And he was urging the Prime Minister to take another look at problems limiting the use of herbal alternative medicines in the UK. So this is something that a lot of people have described as meddling. He says it's not. Rob, those black spider memos that you actually helped to to reveal in The Guardian, they represent private efforts to to meddle or mobilise, however you see it. But has he been more willing to publicly voice his view on things in a way that the Queen Elizabeth hasn't? Yes, but of course, um, he, he's done that from the position of being the heir to the throne. So, for example, 2014, the comment that he made about uh, Vladimir Putin when Russia annexed Crimea, that he was uh, behaving in a way that was akin to uh, Hitler. There was uh, leaked diaries um, published after Charles was at the handover of Hong Kong to China, where he made disparaging remarks about the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. And and much more recently, there's been the um, controversies around his acceptance, uh, or his charity's acceptance of uh, donations from uh, Middle Eastern donors and reports about bags of cash and 
cash for sort of honours controversies. So these kind of moments will inevitably uh, be in people's minds when, as king, he is acting on the international stage in his role as a kind of you know the Britain's most senior diplomat in a way, you know, hosting state visits and so on. So again, that's another example of the fact that you know he's lived a long life, he said things, he's done things, and um, it's it, it, his slate is 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 far less clean than the Queen's was. Well, so is this the kind of king that he's going to be? Someone who seeks to, as he puts it, mobilise politicians on issues he thinks are important? I suspect not in the sense that the way he sees mobilisation is bringing together influential people in society, whether they are business people, academics, politicians, and making a case. I think that kind of mobilisation will have to stop. He will, however, have this direct line to politicians and the Prime Minister, particularly through those weekly meetings that will happen most Wednesdays with the Prime Minister during uh, the periods that Parliament is sitting. And in those, he will have the ability to question, to advise, to warn the Prime Minister of the day about things that matter to him. I think one of the interesting things here, actually, is that although we won't perhaps hear him speaking publicly so much about the controversial issues, because we have so many decades of his on-the-record statements about different things, there is inevitably going to be a temptation for the public to, to kind of infer what his view might be on the political issue of the day. You know, for example, it was only in June that he uh, was overheard criticising the government's policy of deporting migrants to Rwanda. During those conversations, he apparently called uh, these government plans to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda as appalling. If that issue comes up again in the coming months and he's meeting with the Prime Minister, one might think that that's something that he brings up. So that wasn't ever going to be a difficulty for the Queen because she had never spoken about all of these things. So, you know, we will get to get used to the fact that we have as our monarch someone who has uh, strong strident opinions on things and maybe that's not a bad thing uh, but it's certainly a different thing. Given how stridently he's articulated the need for like a revolution for example when it comes to climate change how easily do you think he'll be able to make that transition towards being a more muted neutral figure who has to resist the urge to intervene publicly? And this is where I think a bit about him as a individual and as a person and feel some sympathy with him really because that's obviously going to be a difficulty you know he's spent his whole life working in one way and now he's going to have to work in a slightly different way the idea somehow that i'm going to go on exactly the same way if i have to succeed is complete nonsense because the two the two situations are completely different there has, of course, been speculation that he doesn't just have to stop being the activist prince. He can also replace it with something else, which is a grandfatherly figure to the nation, someone who has said his piece and is now going to take a kind of figurehead position and will lead national life in sort of ceremonial senses and you know on softer kind of issues, trying to unite the country. I mean, another difficulty that he faces, I think, is the fact that the Queen was a very effective focus for people slightly to the right, older people who 
feel high levels of kind of national pride and you know they were able to think well the queen's there we've got her um and she's a sort of solid uh, representation of our belief of in the british way of life i think prince charles is a much more problematical figure in that regard given the wide range of interests that he's had he's a more sort of metropolitan figure he's a more self-interested figure to some degree there's something about his ability to focus that part of the political spectrum in britain which i think is going to be harder for him Hmm. and does he definitely have to make that transition away from being an activist prince like what are the actual rules? Could he still chime in publicly on some bit of legislation that he's interested in? That would precipitate a constitutional crisis, very simply because he, as the sovereign, is not the lawmaker. You know, we have a, a parliamentary democracy. So, uh, you know, that would be um, uh, sort of impossible to envisage, really. The Cabinet Manual, which is a government document that was published in uh, 2010 or 2011, I think, defines the job quite simply as, and I quote, providing stability, continuity, and a national focus. So voicing partisan political opinions about legislation would be completely antithetical to providing stability. So I think there's really no chance of him doing that. Coming up, what will be the first big tests of this new king's reign? It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, Hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Tyler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes from Friday 23rd of September. If we put aside the kind of political influence he might want to have, what are the other ways that Charles can can reinterpret his role as king, change the practice of it day to day? He can change the operation of the royal family, and I think that it's already quite clear that he wants a slimmer monarchy. When there's photo shoots on the balcony, for example, of Buckingham Palace um, over the recent years, you've seen a kind of lineal succession. So the Queen him, Prince William and Prince William's children, not his other siblings and their families. So first of all, narrowing down the number of players, if you like. Here, after 70 years as our sovereign, the Queen, with the working members of her family who support her in her role, 
she's getting a huge happy birthday. If you have a kind of a, a leaner cast, if you like, the more attention is focused on each individual and it makes the kind of control of messaging and kind of direction of the family as an institution easier uh, and potentially more um, punchy. Another thing that he could do, of course, is to sort of throw open the doors more of Buckingham Palace and make it more of a kind of national hub. There are plenty of other buildings where, you know, he can host privately. So maybe we might see some more of that. And I think also it's very likely, isn't it, that Prince William is going to take a much bigger role. And we've already seen Prince William taking a, a bigger role in the environmental cause. Over my grandmother's lifetime, the last 90 years or so, our impact has accelerated so fast that our climate, oceans, air, nature, and all that depends on them are in peril. The science is irrefutable. If we do not act in this decade, the damage that we have done will be irreversible. Over the next few months, what do you think are going to be the first tests that King Charles faces in his new role? In these immediate days, uh, while the country is still in mourning, he has an opportunity to set a new template for himself, actually. And the way he leads the country in mourning could be something that creates a new perception of him in the country. Alongside the personal grief that all my family are feeling, we also share with so many of you in the United Kingdom, in all the countries where the Queen was head of state, in the Commonwealth, and across the world, a deep sense of gratitude for the more than 70 years in which my mother, as queen, served the people of so many nations. And I think that that could be something that will be quite significant for him. And I think in the kind of more medium term, if he chooses to maintain a focus on climate change, that is something that is relatively uncontroversial I would say in terms of the reality of it and the uh, consensus around the need to do something about it and I think it would have the benefit of allowing him to reach a younger audience and to make that a platform on which he can establish his sovereignty and, and thereby keeping part of a cause that is quite close to his soul as well. Okay, and what about those more personal challenges? So, for example, his brother Andrew, the issues with Prince Harry, who has a biography coming out at some point in the near future. Like, do we have any sense of how he'll manage to bring the temperature down on some of these scandals that are closer to home? I think one thing to say on that is that he's a veteran of um, royal scandals. And he has been adept in very recent times over both the Duke of Sussex and the Duke of York, and quite ruthless to some degree in, in terms of dealing with those situations. At least that's the that's the sort of public understanding of things. You never quite know what's going on behind closed doors. And he has very strong, stable people around him. He's not, you know, building an organisation up from scratch. He's been the king over the water, as it were, for a long time at Clarence House. So those sort of things, he will not necessarily take them in his stride. Those will be the easier parts of what he has to do, I think. The harder part, I think, will be becoming a, a sort of true loved figurehead for our nation.
What about the challenge in becoming a kind of well-loved figurehead outside of the nation, in the countries that still pledge some allegiance to the British monarchy? Like, I was in Barbados last year as it was cutting its ties to the Queen and was really struck by how much young people came to see the monarchy as synonymous with the slave trade, colonialism, the genocide of, of indigenous groups. Do we have any sense of how Charles will navigate all of those issues? When Barbados became a republic, Charles was there and he made a, a speech which was considered extraordinary in which he acknowledged the atrocity of the slave trade. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. It seems that his tendency will be to address those kind of issues fairly directly. I mean, clearly there is going to be ongoing tensions between other realms, uh, including Australia, about, well, continuing to have the uh, British monarch as their head of state, and we'll see how that plays out. Rob, just finally, commentators have said that one of the keys to Queen Elizabeth's popularity was her longevity, the fact that she was this constant presence for decades, right back through the Second World War, this foundation story of modern Britain, and that in a country that had changed so radically, she was always there. And it strikes me that Charles doesn't enjoy that advantage. Not only is he coming to the job late in his life, as we said, he's also got the much harder task of remaking himself as this unifying figure in a time where the country feels divided. It feels suspicious of any institution, let alone an unelected head of state. And I wonder, in that context, is it even possible anymore to be that unifying national symbol that is the essence of the job? I think the answer to that is, what does the country want? Does the country want a unifying national symbol? The affection for the Queen suggested that it did. And I'm not sure that that has changed overnight. So I think that there will be a quite a substantial transfer of sympathy, love, if you like, for the new king, almost automatically. For all the difficulties we've talked about, the new king has several things going for him in its advantage. His age means that, you know, he has seen a lot of the change that has happened, coming of age himself in the 60s and the 70s. He is capable of reflecting quite a wide range of society. King Charles is taking the throne um, at a relatively high level of popularity in his life. So he uh, will go with the, uh, into this with the goodwill of a lot of people. Um, and I think that by using and embracing the talents of his son, uh, Prince William, and their family, they will be able to communicate with a wider part of society than if he was just doing it on his own. And while um, there are complexities for him to negotiate, it doesn't immediately seem like there's any kind of crisis for the British royal family in, in this transition. Rob, thanks so much. No problem. Thanks a lot. That was Rob Booth, The Guardian's social affairs correspondent, who's covered King Charles now for several years. Thanks so much to him. You can follow his and all our coverage of King Charles at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Klitsia Sala. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Homer Khalili. We're back tomorrow. 
This is The Guardian.